Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, the surgeon walks us through what is involved in transgender surgery. It's been defined as surgery to modify the primary or secondary sexual characteristics of a patient or a person who wants to change their gender. And an expert in rehabilitation psychology discusses depression in people who have survived a stroke. When you have those deficits that I mentioned, it's upsetting. You recognize sure. how it's changed your life. And so, of course, it's understandable people become depressed about that. A physician bioethicist talks about what to consider before ordering a home genetic testing kit. With a healthcare professional, you are looking for a specific disease state that you are at increased risk for because of your family history. This, this piece is between you and a for-profit company. All that and a selection from The Healing Muse coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll cover depression that sometimes occurs in people who have survived a stroke with an expert in rehabilitation psychology. Then we'll learn what to consider before ordering a home genetic testing kit from a physician bioethicist. But first, we'll hear how transgender surgery is accomplished from an assistant professor of surgery. As a person transitions from one gender to another, surgery is sometimes part of the process. A plastic surgeon at Upstate is here with me today in the studio to explain how these surgeries are done. Welcome to Dr. Prashant Upadhyaya. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. Now, I know you specialize in, in plastic or reconstructive surgery, and I know many of your patients have breast cancer or melanoma, um, but you also have men and women who seek your expertise because they're transitioning from one gender to the other. Um, how do you describe transgender surgery? So uh, transgender surgery has come a long way. Uh, we used to call it sex reassignment surgery or sex change operation. I think the preferred term is probably sex affirmation surgery or gender affirmation surgery. Um, probably in the near future, it will all come down to be called as a gender surgery. So it's been defined as surgery to modify the primary or secondary sexual characteristics of a patient or a person who wants to change their uh, gender. Okay. Now, are we hearing about this more often? It seems like we hear about it more often. Or are You're there right. statistics that show that there's more of these procedures being done? Oh, there are definitely statistics. I think there has been an expl explosion of uh, information and awareness regarding the subject uh, according to uh, ASPS, that is American Society of Plastic Surgery Statistics, the difference in the number of surgeries or the surgeries increased from 2000 to 2017 by a whopping 300%. So um, previously, if 2,000 cases were been done in 2016, we had almost 6,000 cases of um, surgeries been done in 2017. Is there more interest in this or more patients or just the availability of the service that people are now connecting with? I think it's a combination of everything. Um, definitely more awareness. Patients have better access. Uh, more and more insurances are uh, covering these procedures. Um, there's also awareness that this is not just a cosmetic surgery, but probably a reconstructive surgery. So, um, and this is backed by a lot of research, which consistently shows that patients who undergo surgery have a better quality of life. Well, if I understand correctly, transitioning from male to female or female to male is um, a process that's got many steps to it. So at what point does a surgeon get involved? Because there's other endocrinologists maybe, or there's other physicians that might be part of the steps that the patient takes, right? You're very right. And this is a great question. Um, I do want to remove the misconception that transgender surgery or a whim or something that's decided on the spot. It's actually a very, very long process. Typically, the patient enters multiple months to years of therapy by a qualified mental health provider. Uh, they then, if they decide to, are referred to an endocrinologist who, deci who decide if the patient is a suitable person to undergo hormone therapy. It's only 
typically, it's only after hormone therapy has been uh, proceeded with and successfully implemented for over a year, and the person has lived in the desired gender role for over an year, that surgery is considered. Of course, every case is different, and we can't just blanket uh, every case as having as requiring more than a year of uh, hormone therapy or uh, a delay. But typically, that's what we follow. So it's not the case that someone just decides they want to change gender, so they come to you and say, make exactly, me whatever. Exactly, exactly. So. Uh, pretty much, I'm never the first person to encounter a patient or a person wanting to change their gender. They have been extensively worked up and uh, are under some kind of therapy before they are referred to me. All right. Well, you said that it's um, modifying primary or secondary characteristics. What are What's primary and what's secondary? What do you mean? Uh, so primary is what a person is born with. Uh, secondary is what develops after puberty. So um, it's uh, uh, the typical uh, uh, features you develop after puberty would be breast enlargement, enlargement of the external genitalia, pigmentation of the external genitalia, and uh, change in voice, um, change in the facial characteristics, so on and so forth. The surgeries that you're involved with, are they um, on adults or, or people after puberty mostly? Or? Well, as of now, I offer surgery only on adults, so at the age of 18 years. That is just something that I personally uh, believe. That's, there's really no such uh, uh, guideline. There is a standard of care published by WPATH, that is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health, which we very closely follow. And as of now, they're limited to uh, adults, consenting adults who can undergo surgery, like any other procedure. Whether okay. this will change, I don't know. But as of now, I offer surgery only on adults. All right. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with surgeon Prashant Upadhyaya about transgender surgery. So let's talk about the surgeries that you perform. Um, top and bottom, are those surgeries that are right. done together at the same time? or Yeah, typically we don't. Uh, so surgeries can broadly be classified as top surgery and bottom surgery and others. Others would be more of a cosmetic nature, and the typical example is trans uh, uh, or facial feminization surgery. That is typically, as of now, covered, not covered by insurance and is done more in the cosmetic, uh, most, mostly done by cosmetic surgeons. Okay. Uh, and the patients self-pay for that. What insurance typically co nowadays cover is the top surgery, which is uh, essentially chest reconstruction. So it could mean uh, chest feminization in um, male to female transgender patients or chest masculinization. So either adding or removing breasts. Something like that. Something yes. like that. Yeah. Okay. And the bottom surgery, the one we offer as of now is uh, conversion of uh, male genitalia to uh, female. Well, let's um, let's focus on the top surgery. So, how do you prepare someone for this? Is there anything that they have to do in advance to get ready for this surgery? Um, fortunately, most of the patients I get are extremely motivated and well prepared. They must. They usually are one of the most well-informed patient group I've ever seen. They come with uh, all the information. They are aware of what scars they have. I think they have a very strong cohort, and they kind of uh, feed each other information. So, um, I mean, I still go through all the procedure, all the aspects of the procedure with them, but typically they are very, very well-informed and have very few questions. So let me ask you this. Besides the size, is there a difference in a male breast or a female breast that, that you're born with? Um, that's a difficult question to answer. I think the more appropriate question probably which applies here would be the technique. Is the technique of a breast augmentation in uh, cis uh, females the same as transgender females? Uh, I would say that on the whole, it's pretty much the same, but there are important differences. And these are the, these are the aspects we uh, emphasize and show the uh, patients. Fortunately, they are very well aware and they have very reasonable expectations. And uh, it's usually a very successful surgery. So how involved is the surgery? Is it a, is it a uh, one-day surgery or do you have to stay over? Right. Uh, just like any other surgery um, um, on cisgender uh, patients, it's a fairly simple procedure compared to some of the other bigger procedures that we do. 
most of the procedures are same day procedures. Patients spend the uh, after surgery, they spend maybe a couple of hours in the recovery room and then typically go home. They may or may not have drains and the post-op care is typically not very difficult. All right. And they uh, recover and they're able to start, I don't know, doing exercise and that sorts of things in a few right. weeks? Or? Again, I would say, yeah, give or take a few weeks. Uh, again, uh, you know, we cannot generalize this. It all depends on patient to patient. But in general, they're not any more involved than cisgender surgeries. Will there be sensation in the breast tissue? Will you be able to feel sensation after the masculinization or the feminization? Well, anytime you have surgery, the nerves can get affected, so the sensation may get altered. And this is something that is clearly explained to anyone undergoing any kind of chest uh, reconstruction, both in uh, trans or cisgender patients. So uh, given the amount of tissue taken out, the sensation does uh, change, and um, it's very difficult to point out how much will the change be. All right. Can we talk about the bottom surgery? You said from sure. male to female. So your your patient um, would be coming to you for vaginoplasty? Is that what it's called? Well, uh, that's a generic term. Uh, there is a, obviously a lot more that goes on um, when this surgery is done. This is a much more involved procedure. And uh, typically, we would require at least two letters from uh, uh, mental health providers stating the suitability of the patient for this procedure and the need for this procedure, along with endocrinology and other specialists who have cleared the patient for this surgery. The patient obviously has to be healthy to undergo a fairly lengthy procedure. Um, this procedure is done in conjunction with, uh, or this is actually a team approach, and a group of three surgeons are doing it together, and I'm actually the person who shows up last to fashion the external genitalia. Majority of the work is done by Dr. Nikloski and Dr. Blakely, uh, who urologists? are urologists, who are our uh, department urologists. Well, I was yes. going to ask, is this just, just, is this uh, an operation on external genitalia, but that's not the case? No, There's it's a lot actually of... much more involved. Um, a neo-vagina is created and has to be fixed inside the abdomen, and that is why it's done uh, through a robotic approach. Um, uh, we have probably done 15 or more cases of this uh, procedure right now, and uh, we have been seeing some extremely encouraging results. Um, it's a lengthy procedure? Does it take a, a while to do in the operating room? Or? I would say, yeah. Um, I mean, we probably have cut down the uh, amount of time it requires. But yeah, it's definitely much more involved than, say, a chest reconstruction surgery. Will a transgender female need a gynecologist after going through this type of surgery? That's a good question. Uh, we have to remember that uh, there's still a lot of uh, female genitalia and tissue inside the patient, even though they're on hormones. So they will need to undergo regular uh, uh, periodic surveillance, just like any other cisgender uh, female. Um, uh, there are some uh, providers in our system who kind of specialize in this and make special provisions so that uh, the uh, cis or uh, the trans men do not feel uh, awkward going to a gynecologist. Sure. So you mentioned hormone treatments. Um, is that something that this individual will be on for life? I would think so, yes. Uh, fortunately, we have a very good team of endocrinologists in uh, our own uh, Justin Institute uh, who take care of uh, such patients and, in fact, are the primary source of referral for me. Uh, it's usually they who take care of the patient for a long time and um, only once they feel that the patient is an appropriate candidate do they refer the patient to me for surgery. Um, what is recovery like for bottom surgery? Is, is it a lengthier? It sounds like it's a lot more involved than the top surgery. Would you be in the hospital? Uh, I would say the patient will probably be staying in the hospital for two to three nights. Um, it's getting better and better, and uh, our, especially our younger, healthier patients are leaving the hospital within two nights but expect to stay in the hospital for a couple of days. Have you uh, been there when a patient wakes up from the anesthesia from this surgery just to see and, and uh, what it's like for them in a new gender? Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, as I said, I'm usually the last person of doing, I'm the person doing the last part of the procedure. So we're all there. And uh, by the time patient wakes up, the first thing they ask is, how do I look? 
And typically we actually take a photograph and load it to the chart and uh, so that, that the patient can actually see how they look. And um, that's a very gratifying moment uh, to see the look on the patient's face when they figure out that this is what they wanted and they kind of reached their destination. Wow. Well, thanks so much for sharing this information. I appreciate you being here. My guest has been plastic surgeon Prashant Upadhyaya. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, how stroke survivors may deal with depression on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. When a person is recovering from a stroke, one of the things health professionals are on the lookout for is post-stroke depression. With me in the studio to talk about this is rehabilitation psychologist Dr. Michelle Wugan. She's a licensed clinical psychologist in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at Upstate. Welcome, Dr. Wugan. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks. So I'd like to start by having you explain your role in the inpatient rehabilitation facility at Upstate. Absolutely. So I work as a as you said, rehabilitation psychologist. I'm full-time on our inpatient rehabilitation facility, so working with patients who uh, have come down to the unit because they continue to need rehabilitation prior to going home. It's not yet considered safe, if you will, for them to go home. They still need help with either ambulating or taking care of activities of daily living or kind of cognitive or thinking difficulties. So some of your patients are are stroke patients, but Mm -hmm. some of them have had other brain injuries or other injuries. Correct. Right. So there's stroke, there's uh, amputations, car accidents, so can kind of include all body accidents um, or injuries, brain injuries from car accidents or other kind of um, accidents. (laughs) Okay. Uh, And then also working with their family members, uh, caregivers, and then we also have students on the, the unit as well that I work with. Okay, wonderful. Well, let's talk about um, what is post-stroke depression. Absolutely. So post-stroke depression is the development of depression or depressive symptoms following a stroke. Stroke being a lack of oxygen to the brain, either from some kind of obstruction that keeps the, the blood flowing to the brain or bleeding in the brain. So basically the brain cells are drowning too much blood, um, and that can cause a number of, of difficulties or deficits, physical, right, difficulty walking, talking, dressing themselves, uh, and also thinking deficits, so being able to problem solve, memory, um, knowing what's safe and what's not safe, being able to pay bills. Um, so is this, help me understand, is this a depression that someone who suffers a stroke when they are finally sort of aware of what's happened to them they're, they've already got this depression because it's something that happened to their brain when they had the, the stroke as opposed to they become aware of what's happened and get depressed about it. Right. So there's a working theory. There's basically three possibilities, three, three possible reasons. One being that when you have those deficits that I mentioned, it's upsetting. You recognize sure. how it's changed your life. And so, of course, it's understandable people come depressed about that. Um, also... When you have a lack of oxygen in a brain injury, right, a stroke is a brain injury, um, the brain is now in recovery, is trying to rewire the lines of communication within the brain. And so the theory is also what might be happening is that as the brain is literally rewiring itself, it's rewiring itself to be more depressed because our emotions are also housed in our brain. And so it could be that it's rewiring to be depressed. It could also be a combination of the two. Oh, Okay. Well, regardless, it seems like it's something, you know, to be concerned with. Um, how common is it? Do, does every person who sustains a stroke deal with this? Right. Not everybody. Um, but it is, it's found to be at least a third of survivors do experience post-stroke depression. Um, survivors of stroke, that is. 
Are there risk factors that make someone um, more or less prone? Yes, to, there are. So there are four kind of factors that we consider strongly. Um, one being the severity of the stroke. Severity being that either um, how much of the brain has been impacted, but that doesn't necessarily mean the the area, the surface area of the brain, but also it could be a very small part of the brain, but that small part carries a lot of power. And so if that's kind of lost electricity, if you will, okay. um, that can really be a very considered severe stroke. Also, the severity of the disabilities caused by the stroke. Some people, you know, are entirely paralyzed on the right side of their body. Some people, you don't even know they had a stroke. So if they're more disabled, that's a risk factor, as well as their thinking difficulties, as I'd mentioned, not being able to problem solve memory. The, the more of those problems, the more likely you are to develop post-stroke depression, as well as a history of depression. And we know history, you know, excuse me, depression um, is quite common amongst the general population. So uh, it's not surprising when people tell me they also had a history. They're also at risk of developing post-stroke depression. So is it, are the symptoms of this type of depression different from a depression someone may have without stroke being a part of it? Nope. So they're very similar. Um, okay. I'm looking for the same criteria. So basically things to look out for would include... Um, sad mood, excessive crying, low motivation, um, changes in sleep, changes in eating, um, and really kind of a, a loss of interest in activities that they used to enjoy. And then also you'll hear possibly uh, thoughts of wanting to die or suicide. Now, from previous stroke experts that we've had on this show, I know that sleep is part of recovery mm -hmm. from stroke. So... Is that hard to tease that apart? So that's the thing too, right? So we're looking for symptoms of depression, but also brain injury can mimic those same symptoms. So sleeping, the brain needs to sleep after an injury. It's easily fatigued. And so they, you might notice that they're sleeping a lot, but maybe that's because they're recovering. Uh, they also might look like they have poor uh, motivation or initiation, but that's also something that can be caused by brain injury where the brain has trouble telling the body to get going. So you have a plate of food in front of you, and you know it's time to eat, but the brain is just not telling the body, okay, pick up the fork, put the food on the fork, fork to the mouth. So it, it can be tricky. You also don't want to kind of chalk these symptoms up to that it's just the brain injury, but you also don't want to panic and assume that any kind of symptom is it's severe depression. Because, again, like you had kind of referenced, that this is an upsetting situation to people. I expect there to be a level of sadness and degree, and that's okay. It's okay when you notice that in yourself or, or your loved one, whoever had the stroke. Wow. So does this develop soon after a stroke? Yes, so. it can. It also can develop, you know, even like a year after stroke. Again, you know, so recovery in itself after a stroke is pretty much one to two years. Um, and the, the same presentation or depression, the onset of depression could occur anytime in there. On, you know, on the inpatient unit working with uh, primary um, physical medicine and rehab, we do, we do often see it develop in patients while they're on the unit, um, but also it can develop in people out after they've, after been, they've discharged. been discharged in their mm -hmm, home. Mm -hmm. So it's got to be hard. I mean, how do you go about teasing a, uh, the difference between like sort of the normal grieving mm -hmm. process, if you will, after having such a health crisis versus post-stroke depression that may need treatment. Absolutely, right. So as I um, had said that it would be appropriate for people to have some upsetting symptoms or, or reactions to the stroke, right? I actually kind of get nervous when I see, I shouldn't say nervous, I, I would prefer to see people exhibiting signs of sadness and kind of being grieving, as you said, that they're grieving because it's a loss. You've lost the level of functioning that you had. So if I don't see that, it become, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a red flag for me. I want to see them appropriately grieving. What I look for, if they are sad and they're kind of uh, looking like they're um, having some symptoms like not sleeping well, their, their eating has changed, or, or for whatever reason, if I think that they, they might be showing signs of depression, I'm also looking for something that shows me that they're also coping. So are they focused on the future? You know, are they talking about, I want to get back to work? I want to get back to driving. I want to be with my grandbabies. What's future orientation? Um, are they engaged in therapy? Or are they kind of just wanting to bury their head in the covers all day and, and refuse therapies? Um, and then if they're able to also 
focus on, if they're able to focus on things outside of the stroke, so other than the stroke, you know, are they able to talk about pleasant memories that they had or just ask people how their day is going or are they very kind of hyper-focused on the stroke? Mm. Um, that's, if they're able to have other conversations, that's for me is also a sign that they're coping. So mm. to look for those as well. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with psychologist Michelle Wugan about depression in people who have survived a stroke. So what are the negative impacts of post-stroke depression? Is yes. there is there an impact? On Absolutely. So it's, it's worth following up and, and receiving treatment or help for symptoms of post-stroke depression. It's found to uh, limit participation in rehab, which we rely on rehab to help the brain rewire itself and recover. It um, interferes with people's quality of life and their involvement in the community. Um, and it increases the need for medical visits. Research has found a correlation there. And also it increases the risk of death and suicide. So it's really important in that aspect. Well, in terms of treatment, how mm -hmm. do you go about treating this type of depression? Absolutely. So if you or somebody you know looks like they are showing signs of depression, the recommendation would be to speak with the physiatrist, which is the doctor of physical medicine and rehab. If for whatever reason, they don't have a physiatrist to talk to the primary care doctor. They'll help figure out, you know, okay, is this more of the brain injury itself? Is this looking more like depression? And then help you come up with a treatment plan or, or recommendations. So that might include medications because um, some medications are good for helping to stabilize the mood as well as helping rewire that brain. Um, and some recommendations include uh, being connected to a, a mental health professional because honestly, sometimes more of the talk therapy is the best medication. Um, so they can kind of help identify if one or both of those would be the approach to take if it looks like it is depression. So it could end up being both. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, now, are there side effects with medication when you're trying to recover from a brain injury? Does that, do you have to be mindful of which? Sure. Like any medication, there's absolutely the possibility of side effects. So being sure to ask questions, know what to look out for for side effects. Um, and again, remembering that stroke can impact people's ability to think the way that they used to. So if you go with a loved one to a doctor's appointment, maybe take extra notes if the doctor recommends or um, identifies any possible uh, side effects uh, to help them remember and keep an eye out for those. Now, as the person goes through recovery, um, rehabilitation, and perhaps is able to sort of regain some of their abilities, does that help the depression dissipate, like, naturally? Sure, it can, it right? Especially if it's related to grieving the loss of functioning. And as you get better, we would anticipate that you'd start to feel better. Um, if it's, remember, the, the working theory is also it might be as the brain's rewiring itself. So as that's the... the kind of pathways of communication are, are finding not more appropriate ways, but ways that don't su don't suggest or uh, lead to depression, then you might also see the depression lift. Well, let me ask you about um, family members or, mm -hmm. so, you know, loved ones that are helping the person um, after the stroke. Does a patient's depression impact the loved ones? It absolutely can, right? So a lot of times when I go in and talk to family members, one of my top questions is, what are you doing to take care of yourself? Um, for those people who have flown on an airplane, I will use the um, kind of the analogy of it's putting the oxygen mask on yourself before you put it on other people. And you do that because you really are not of the best help to others if you aren't making sure to take care of yourself. Um, it's hard to watch a loved one experience depressive symptoms. Um, it's very easy to want to tell them everything's going to be okay, and that's a good thing to, to say, absolutely. It's also very helpful to sit with them and say, I know this is hard, and I'm here with you, and um, you let me know if there's something that you need. Uh, to just not try to say everything is, 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 is good again, because it's, it's not. You know, they're, they're grieving, and that's appropriate. So what do you say to someone who's um, in the situation where they have, uh, you know, a loved one who's recovering from stroke and they, they think maybe there's some depression there? What, what do you tell them to do? To follow up or go to the physiatrist, go to the primary care doctor, um, and assess, again, is this, does this look like it's more of the brain injury itself? And then 
physical, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. They can kind of help the family member develop some skills of how they can work with the patient. Um, or if they think it's more depression, again, the doctor can work with them to identify would it be good for medication, for therapy, combination of the, the two, whatever they think would be best. Well, thank you so much for this information. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Dr. Michelle Wugan. She's a psychologist at Upstate who works in the physical medicine and rehabilitation department. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, What should you think about before buying a home genetic test kit? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Since the human genome was mapped in the early 2000s, science has seen an explosion of research into the genetic underpinnings of various disease states. And now it's possible for a few hundred dollars for a person to purchase direct-to-consumer genetic testing without the involvement of their physician. This raises a lot of issues, and here to discuss them with me is Dr. Thomas Curran. He's an Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate. Thanks for being here. My pleasure, Amber. So tell me how you got interested in this subject. I was asked to be a speaker at a a technology conference, and uh, I came up with the direct-to-consumer genetic testing because I had seen it advertised on television, and I thought it was... Uh, I didn't quite get it. I didn't know what they were driving at there. It seemed somewhat silly to me, but I thought, um, I thought this, there's got to be something here. This is turning into big business. And so my original idea for the talk was that I was going to send in a sample of my saliva and have it analyzed by the big player in the business, 23andMe. And I would use the results of their analysis of my uh, DNA as a, a hook for the talk, a way to in, in, engage the, the, the folks at the conference. But as I began to research the topic, it became apparent to me that there were many more questions than answers with the what, was, what information was being provided by 23andMe, and, and furthermore, what they were doing with my genetic data. And I opted to not send in a saliva sample, but rather discuss uh, what 23andMe's business model was about and some of the um, issues or concerns I had regarding uh, informed consent uh, of the people sending in their saliva, uh, patient privacy issues, and what I thought to be a, a lack of transparency with regards to 23andMe and what they were doing with people's genetic data. So you uh, investigated before you um, you know, sent in a sample and decided not to send in a sample, not to do this. I so. am so glad that I did the research first because that's the other thing I've come to find out. It's, it's hard to unring the bell once they get hold of your data. It is. It, so, yes, I, I fortunately did the research so that I could make an informed decision about whether or not I wanted to uh, participate in, in their business model. Now, and, and there's other entities out there that will do similar sort of DNA analysis. So. Uh, Absolutely. The, the, the two big ones right now are 23andMe and Ancestry.com. Ancestry.com. Yeah. So can we talk about the sort of the quality of the data that they're promising to give? Absolutely. Because there's, um, they portend the, to be able to tell you, like, if you have a higher risk for breast cancer, say, or, or diseases. And who wouldn't want to know that, right? Sure. And, and, and the... The pitch line, the marketing line here, is personal empowerment through genetic knowledge. And we've all seen the commercials, and it's a person under, you know, doing various activities in various parts of the world, evidently reflecting the different genetic uh, heritage that they have, and something along the line, you know, getting to know you, playing in the background, and... Uh, we are all connected by our DNA is like a, a message that flashes across the bottom. So, you know, that, 
that's a very the, the image that's being created is that you will become personally empowered by further. So th they do three. They give you three types of reports. I'll just briefly touch on the three types of reports. The first report that they give you is called a wellness and trait report, and this answers uh, riveting questions such as: Is your earwax dry? or wet? Was it likely to be dry or wet? Something I know I've pondered many times. <laughs> uh, what, what, what's the likelihood that you will be able to smell asparagus in your urine? You know, these are questions that people <laughs> need to know. Uh, are you likely to flush uh, when you consume alcohol? So I consider the, the, the wellness and trait report to be essentially infotainment. It is, medically, it's meaningless. irrelevant. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's meaningless. Well said. So the second report that they do is called a, a carrier status um, report. And in this, they, they, they take 40, 40 or more um, diseases that are inherited by autosomal recessive mechanism. Now, I'm not going to get into the genetics, but it just means that if your mom and your dad both have to have the trait and, and um, in order for you to have it as a, as a child. Uh, and so the problem with the report is that they don't, they don't check for all of the, um, tra all of the uh, genetic variants that can lead to the various um, autosomal recessive conditions. So if you have a negative um, screen in their carrier status um, report, it doesn't mean that you can't be a carrier. It just means you don't have the forms of carriers that they check for. So... It does not rule out being a carrier. That's the long and short of it. If they well, say, you could misinterpret that, though. You could look at it and think, oh, good, I don't have it. I don't have but, it. But you're wrong. But you'd be wrong. And, the, and, and, and that's in the fine print, but it's not in the... It's not, it's, right. it, you have to dig to get to it. As, as I mentioned to you, the, the, this is dense, dense material to slog through. And you know, I'm a... I'm a physician, I've been around science for decades, and I had a heck of a time trying to figure out what was going on with this stuff, and I can't even imagine what um, a non-medical person or non-science person, how they would ever figure this out. It, it, it was not easy. I'll briefly touch on the third report, the genetic health risk report. So th this, is a, this is just a grab bag um, of 11 different uh, conditions, uh, two of the big ones that, that people are familiar with is Parkinson's and late onset Alzheimer's, and the genetic health risk report checks for mutations that are associated with an increased risk for some of these conditions, but the, the mutations that they test for account for only a fraction of the genetic mutations that can lead to these conditions. So once again, you get an incomplete picture, incomplete. A. B, if you have a family history of something like Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, to, to, to go through the genetic health risk um, assessment through 23andMe would mean nothing. You still have got a risk of having these conditions just based on your family history, your lifestyle choices, your, 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 ancest your genetics, your ancestry. So Something you don't need a DNA test to tell e you. Exactly. So once again, this, this, the, 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 so typically when, when genetic testing is done in, in the old school model, the medical model, you are looking, with a healthcare professional, you are looking for a specific um, disease state that you are at increased risk for because of your family history. And it's private. It's based on the patient-physician relationship. And the information is discussed at, uh, with a medical professional to help to aid with interpretation and, and minimize misunderstanding. You know, this, this piece is between you and a for-profit company. Uh, where when you give consent to participate with them, you're clicking a box. You're not, you're not reading an informed consent document. You're just saying, sure, research sounds good. I'm, I'm all for improving the, right. you know, the status of the world and man and, and people in general. Yeah, I'm, I'm an altruist. So tell me what you learned about how the business is set up. Okay, so the, 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 I've, I've just described to you what I consider to be the, the front end of the business, and that is the... Uh, collection and analysis of saliva samples from five million people and growing, and what I, what, I, what I had no idea about until I had begun research for this talk was the back end of the business, and the back end of the business is taking this genetic 
information and uh, anonymizing it and aggregating it and selling it. That I had, I, I, I had no idea that that was going on. So they take people's DNA and what do they, what do they do with anonymizing, taking out identifiers, but then they sell it to someone else? So they sell it to, they, they sell it to, um, they sell it to big players in, in uh, pharmaceutical industry is a big, big player for this one. So they have contracts with um, Pfizer, uh, con- contract with Genentech. They just signed a uh, $300 million contract with GlaxoSmithKline, one of the big pharmaceutical, biggest pharmaceutical players in, uh, in the world. And they're selling anonymized, aggregated data. And the, the, the reason why um, uh, pharmaceutical companies are interested in this information is because they, they're, we all read about personalized medicine and how, you know, tar- targeted medicines based on your genetics. It, it's, it, it, that's, that's, a, that's a real thing, and it's a good thing. Uh, uh, and, but it's also it's going to be a very profitable thing for folks who get it right. And so the, the most straightforward way to get a, a leg up on that is to have a large quantity of data that you can start to sift through. And, you know, one of the things that um, is I think, I, think uh, I, I believe the number is somewhere in the neighborhood of 80% of the, of, the, of the folks who send their saliva samples from 23andMe, 80% of them agree to participate in research. And so you're talking about millions and millions of folks. And the, the additional thing that 23andMe does for the folks who agree to participate in research is they'll ping them with one-off questions. The average person answers up, uh, is estimated 300 of these one-off questions. And they are questions that illuminate lifestyle choices and um, the levels of physical activity and family histories of disease states and those sorts of things. And so now you have genetic, genetic data that has additional linkages to actual phenotypic data or data about the person. Now, you can anonymize it, of course, and take the person's name away from it, but it, it, it's, it, it gets stickier the more, the, the more um, linkages that there are. And so, the, 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 you know, this is um, uh, what concerns me is that the technology for re-identifying uh, genetic data, anonymized genetic data, exists, and it's becoming uh, more, uh, it's, 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 go, it's, it's becoming more and more sophisticated. It's, it's a thing to re-identify genetic data. So that someone could take that data and put the pieces back together and figure out that it's me. Well, yes, and it's particularly when it's tr- tied to specific physical traits. And there was just an, uh, a publication in the last uh, three or four months uh, about an MIT scientist who identified people uh, behind five uh, supposedly anonymous genetic samples. Uh, and uh, he had taken it from a public research data bank, genetic data bank, and he did it in less than a day. So he, he pulled five anonymous samples in less than a day, linked it to the exact person who had who had wow. given it? So this gave this, this gave me um, this gave me chills, because that is that's scary to me that that you, that, that that technology exists. Because I, I think, well, I wonder. Uh, these are for-profit companies, and so you, you, you uh, I, there's a in two, so a couple things. One, our our let our legislate our federal and state oversight on this lags behind the, the gathering and, and, and selling of genetic data. We, we, we are behind the eight ball on this so one. Does, does HIPAA, the protective HIPAA, that doesn't come into play with any of this? So HIPAA was written, or was, was, went into law in 1996, when this sort of genetic testing was just a, right. a, was, was a no one saw this coming. As, we said, as you said in your outs at the beginning of the, of the, of the program, you know, no one anticipated the entire genome being mapped right. by 2000, you know. So HIPAA um, has a, a specific provision in it that says that if, if a medical provider, if, uh, if someone's in possession of, of medical data, if they anonymize it, they can sell it. And so this was really meant for stuff like 
biopsies and you know it's very um, uh, non-personally identifiable stuff. It did have it, so it's a major loophole for for the direct consumer genetic testing because HIPAA says if you anonymize it, you can sell you can it. Sell it, huh. and so HIPAA's behind. And there, there's been further legislation on this, and the the, um, the genetic information non-discrim non-discrimination act was um, was an attempt for the the government to kind of um, limit how genetic information could be used in a prejudicial fashion. And so what they address specifically are things like you can't use genetic data to, for employment discrimination, and you can't use genetic data for health insurance um, um, discrimination. But it doesn't address things like uh, long-term health care insurance or life insurance. So it's, it's a... It, and these are things that one could see where if, a, if in that industry, if you could figure out a way to identify folks that were likely to be expensive with regards to life insurance or long-term care insurance, the potential exists to screen folks based on genetic data to um, either accept or deny coverage for these things. And that's, that's scary to me. I, I, yeah, it doesn't seem right to me, and uh, and 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 it, both HIPAA and the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act are meant to protect the privacy of the individual consumer. Wow, that's the they just don't it, it, it's just it's but it, but it's not it can't keep up with technology. We're always ethics is always chasing technology. It just gets out ahead it gets out ahead of us, and so I think that, that you know uh, from a from a protection standpoint, it's, it's going to be critical that this, these, these sorts of um, potential abuses of re-identification of genetic data are addressed and so that the consumer is protected. Well, you've given us a lot to think about um, with, you know, with this genetic testing, which seems enticing, but you've made us uh, think about some things before we go forward with it. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. My guest has been Dr. Thomas Curran, an Associate Professor of Bioethics and Humanities at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Elaine Mansfield has written movingly about grief and renewal in her book, Leaning Into Love. She amplified those lessons learned while taking care of her husband, Vic, in a TED Talk entitled Good Grief. I would like to read an excerpt from a story she sent us about being the caregiver for her mother-in-law after her husband had died. It's called Give My Son a Kiss from Me and depicts the cruelties memory loss means. Where's my Victor? My mother-in-law, Virginia, asks for the third time in 10 minutes. He's traveling, I say. That's one way to describe a man who died in 2008. A year ago, the conversation went like this. Where's Victor? Oh, I remember he died, didn't he? Her voice was accusing before it softened into despair. Why didn't you tell me, she said, with tears dripping down her cheeks. I didn't remind her she'd gone to his memorial service when she was 92. What happened to him? He had cancer, Virginia, I said. She turned her face to the side and swiped the air with a dismissive hand, as though brushing my words away. Each time, over and over, she wept, as though hearing the tragic news for the first time. She doesn't push for truth now. She hasn't changed much physically the last year, but her memory fades more each month. It's not the obliteration of Alzheimer's, but the confusion of a woman of 101 who had a keen mind until she was 98. She has trouble remembering the deaths of those she loved, her husband, who died in 1991, her only child's death, or her sister, who died this year. 
I imagine her standing on a threshold where the dead feel as close and real as the living. Will you give him a kiss from me when you see him, she asks now. I will, I say as I pat her arm. Of course she longs to see her boy, the center of her world, but there's no use upsetting her. From the beginning, we told the truth about Vic's incurable cancer, but she had been so sure. God won't take my only child from me. God won't do that to me. We couldn't convince her that we are all mortal, even her only child. After Vic's death, she raged about what God had done to her. Although she never returned to the Catholic Church, she's forgotten her anger now. Where's my Victor? She asks again, looking up at me from her chair. He's traveling, I say, or he's teaching out of town. I'm a smooth liar. Her nearly blind eyes don't see my sad eyes or the slight grimace on my lips. She doesn't notice that the last story I told is the same as the one I tell today. He's always traveling. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, the new shingles vaccine. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes and other podcast sources by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.